In 2016, a woman named Sherry Papini gets her children off to daycare, texts her husband to see if he will be home for lunch, then she heads out on a run. When Sherry's husband returns home that evening after work, there is no sign of his wife and kids. He is thinking, where are my wife and kids? The house is completely quiet. He calls the children's daycare and the children are still there waiting to be picked up. But Sherry is nowhere to be seen. This leads to an FBI investigation that takes years to get to the truth. The world was shocked to discover what had actually happened. And I can guarantee it is not what you're thinking unless you already know this case. I can say I have never covered a case like this one before. So come hang out with me while I talk true crime. Welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. Are you ready for this case? (laughs) Are you ready for this case? Yikes. All right. Never more have I wished I had a co-host to bounce this case off of while I'm reading it because... It, it you'll you'll see you will just see let's jump in because there's a lot to cover and i can assure you this is a very abnormal outcome we have yet to see this on this podcast so let's just start from the beginning sherry papini was born in june 11th 1982 okay we're starting We're starting at the beginning. By 2006, she had married her first husband. Uh, I'm not going to name him here. By 2009, Sherry had divorced uh, that husband and she had remarried her second husband, Keith Papini. Now she is Sherry Papini. Sherry and Keith, they have two children together. They live in in Mountain Gate area in Shasta County near Redding, California. And they were living this seemingly great life. I can already hear everyone screaming, just stop right now. I know where this is going, but no, (laughs) no, you do not. I almost promise you, you do not know where this is going. Um, There were a few people who knew Sherry that would, would describe her as a devoted mother and wife. She loved her kids. People, I heard this in interviews, she loved her kids. And she loved them so much and she was really good at being a mom, which is why on November 2nd in 2016, when she did not pick her kids up from daycare, people were suspecting the worst. They were like, if she didn't pick her kids up, something must have happened to her to stop her from doing that. So people were, they were very alarmed by this. She had texted her husband, I believe it was around 11 in the morning that day to uh, see if if he would be leaving work for lunch, to have lunch at home. But he was so busy, he he had to stay at work. In the court documents I found online, it read that Sherry had texted her husband, Keith, about specifically coming home to have sex with her that afternoon on his lunch break, but he was busy and he didn't. 
So that afternoon, sometime between, I'm going to give a window of 11 and 5 here, Sherry put on her jogging clothes and she went for a run. Sherry was training for a 5K run that was coming up and she had recently had a, a breast augmentation, but she was healed and she could now get back into her runners just in time to to train for this upcoming 5K. Her husband knew she was training for this and knew that she had started running again. So he knew that she would go out for runs. This was part of her daily routine. Her husband gets home that evening around five and the home is peaceful. So the sound of a quiet home, it was not a good sign. And he can't figure out where his wife and children are. So he calls her, no answer. He calls the daycare, finds out the kids are still there needing to be picked up. And he's freaking out he, he's not really freaking out at this point yet but he's alarmed enough that he uses the find my iphone app to look for sherry's phone and he traces it to a location he's like what the hell so this location it was near their home it was one mile away by the entrance of the old oregon trail and sunset drives just down the road from their house this is okay so now it's freak out time so sherry's husband keith He's now alarmed enough to call police because when he finds Sherry's phone, it's on the ground and there is blonde hair that had been ripped out and entangled in the headphones. Sherry has blonde hair. That's her phone. Why is her hair in her headphones and her phone is on the ground? So this is looking like an emergency situation as it would to anybody. And her pink running jacket, it was also found abandoned in, in the same area. He, he does take the phone. But before he picks up the phone, he takes a picture of it to show police so he can show them how and where and when he found it, basically. And the phone, it didn't appear to be thrown. It didn't appear as if there was a struggle and the phone had dropped. It looked almost placed intentionally where he found it. Keith, he dials 911. He gets on the phone to an operator. He describes the situation. He describes his wife, 34-year-old Sherry Papini, to the operator. She's got blonde hair, blue eyes. She weighs like 103 pounds, gives her birthday, blah, 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 blah. She's a very, very small woman. I believe she was like 5'3 five, five, and 105 pounds or something. Very, very small. And Keith sends his mother to collect the children from daycare. So he's dealing with... He can't find his wife. He's Now he's having to deal with getting these kids from daycare and kind of still have this like normal life coinciding with this crazy situation. When police get to Keith and Sherry's home, they look around and it's clear that Sherry did not plan on leaving for a long time that day. They found her purse and they found other things someone would generally take with them if they were going to say, run away. Police immediately suspect Keith okay immediately they're gonna suspect the husband that's where that's where this starts that's where the whole investigation is gonna start but he's cleared very quickly as his cell phone records and his vehicle's gps it shows that he was at work all day it doesn't show him coming home and leaving or leaving it you know leaving the leaving his job for any amount of time that day he was at work And he even agrees to a polygraph, which I know those can be completely unreliable and he could have actually fucked himself by doing that, but he passes it. And he was seeming very willing. He was cooperating with police and he wanted to help find his, his wife. And it was, it was pretty clear. I mean, 
to police he didn't have any anything to do with Sherry's disappearance. There was also a lingering question, though. Did Sherry purposefully run away? Did she abandon her family? But everyone who knew her was like, no way, she would never leave her children. And we see this a lot in cases when women are missing. First, they're like, well, did they run away? Was there problems in your marriage? Financial problems, whatever. And Keith said, I mean, they fought a bit, but nothing crazy like they never had domestic violence or screaming fights I think the last little tiff they got into was about like a messy room and it he said it probably wasn't more than what any um married couple like would fight so their marriage it wasn't rocky he wouldn't call it rocky he wouldn't say there was was any problems so everybody was thinking no she didn't run away and they don't want police thinking this because then maybe police aren't gonna go down avenues to possibly find her so people really didn't want the police thinking that sherry had had ran away anyway so police they have to believe that perhaps sherry was abducted on her run and they put out a call to action to the public asking anyone who may know where she is or if they saw anything to call police keith also goes on television and he pleads for the safe return of his wife which i mean that can also mean nothing because chris watts did the same thing and we all know what happened in that chilling deeply disturbing case but this case is not like that case at all because Keith he's genuinely concerned about his wife and he wants her to come home when Keith makes his plea for Sherry's safe return he is clearly hurting his eyes are filled with tears his voice is shaky and you can just tell he really means everything he is saying he looks genuine in his in his plea A couple days after Sherry's disappearance, uh, GoFundMe was set up by Keith or by his friend. I saw in one source saying his friend and then another source I saw he did it. Either way, the money is going to the Papini family and this was called the Help Find Sherry Papini GoFundMe. This GoFundMe, it raised a lot of money. I read it raised $49,000 to go towards bringing Sherry home like for private detectives or uh, I don't know things I guess you you just need things you need resources to aid these things and they they were getting money donated but that's not all though suddenly one day a man appears and he's like hey I saw your story on the news and I have an idea this man he remains anonymous I still don't even know who this man is. Actually, still, I have a ton of more questions about this man that were never answered. But he pledges a $50,000 donation to, um, okay, this is where it gets weird, (laughs) to offer the abductors for the safe return for Sherry. And in the True Crime Daily episode that I watched on this, it kept calling it a reverse ransom. I've never heard of this happen before, but apparently, and I say apparently because this was never verified, but the police hear about this and they're like, no fucking way, buddy. Like if, so if that's true that the police are like, no, don't do it. I could imagine police are thinking it's a bad idea because this could encourage more bad people to abduct women if they think they can sell them back to their families. I mean, obviously that is not a good message to send to 
kidnappers or abductors. So I get it. If police didn't want that to happen, I get it. But it wasn't really verified that police knew this was going to happen. So I don't know what's happening there. I don't know who this anonymous donor is, but it just gets a little bit more twisted. So this anonymous man, he doesn't give up though. And eventually he gets in contact with Keith and Keith, he agrees to do this to make sure the abductors know about this because they have to get the word out. They have to get them to see it. They start a web page and they post videos on it. Okay, so I'm getting to the if that's not enough part. <laughs> they get a captivity survival expert to be in these videos to speak to the abductors. And they inform them that they have $50,000 for them if they return Sherry. This captivity survival expert He's also, I guess, some kind of self-proclaimed hostage negotiator, and his name is Cameron Gamble, and he is hired for this, and when I say hired, I believe he was paid a dollar. I'm not sure, but, like, I'm not sure why it was a dollar, but that's what he says, and maybe it was to legally sell his services. He he has to take some type of monetary gain, even if it's a dollar, and it seemed like more of a donate his service kind of situation but this Cameron guy he is he is legit okay so he actually caught a lot of unwanted attention for doing this people were accusing him of doing it to promote his business because he I guess teaches people how to survive in um captive situations and they so all of these people they're like you're doing this to promote your business they they're saying all these terrible things about him about his wife and people were just really rude about it and I don't know why he got so much flack for doing this he just made these videos speaking to these abductors and um yeah, I don't know. He just caught a lot of flack for this. Cameron says in a True Crime Daily interview that he was actually reluctant to help. He didn't jump into this head first. He didn't find them. They found him. And his wife encouraged him. Like, I don't know. Maybe you should help find this woman. He's like, yeah, well, I do want to help find a missing mother. Um, he did want to to help. But, I mean, he wasn't chomping at the bit to get this position. And... Ultimately, he decided to get involved and he did it and he just caught a lot of shit from the public, which I don't understand. So anyways, he was hired because the man who donated the 50 grand, he wants to stay anonymous to not only protect himself, but also his family. Okay. And he says in an interview with what? Chris Hansen. So this anonymous donor, Chris Hansen gets an interview with him. And this is a Chris Hansen. He's reporting for uh, True Crime Daily. And... Um, he also tells Chris Hansen he wants to stay anonymous because this situation isn't about him. So apparently he owns a business and he doesn't want people to be like, you're doing this to promote your business, which I mean, people are really pointing their fingers talking about people promoting businesses when they're just trying to help people. So he wants to stay anonymous because he doesn't want people talking about him. It's not about him. It's about Sherry and it's about bringing her home. This anonymous man, he doesn't know Keith. He doesn't know Sherry. He has no connection with the Papini family. He just really wants to help bring Sherry home safely. That is kind of weird to me. <laughs> okay? That's kind of odd to me. I hope there are good people out there like this, but 
I guess I'm just very cautious of people. Um, and that's maybe why I found this odd. I mean, it's great and it's wonderful. And I love that this man just saw Keith on television crying about his missing wife and was like, I'm going to do something because that's essentially what happened. He wanted to help. He felt bad that Keith's wife was missing and he did not know them at all. And he comes up with this idea for this reverse ransom and he's like, I'm going to try it. I'm going to try it. I, I don't know. It's just really weird. And I will say now I don't ever find out who this guy is. I don't ever fi find out why he did this. I just got to say that now. Okay, I am going to do a bit of a side note here. Earlier I mentioned Chris Hansen. <laughs> so the the Cameron guy, the hostage negotiator, and the anonymous donor were interviewed by Chris Hansen. And I got a bit excited there. And just recently I binged watch to catch a predator this show was on i remember it was on when i was a child and i used to watch it all the time and i thought oh this is cool but then re-watching it as an adult who's fucking obsessed with true crime i was like whoa i loved it i binged the whole thing and he hosts that show and it's where a team of people hunt predators online by posing as uh, children and they get these pedophiles and sex predators to meet them in a decoy house so there's not actually children online it's actually a grown person working for an organization online using the mannerisms and, and speech and whatever of like 11 12 13 year old girls and boys and they get these these they don't get them actually the predator initiates conversation with them there's like laws they have to abide by so they can't bait the predator they can't go on there saying nasty things the predator will have to approach them in a chat room and say hey hello and then they can respond hello like they can't initiate a sexual conversation they're not allowed to do that it's the predator that has to do that and you would be alarmed you would be alarmed at the amount of people Chris Hansen caught on the show to catch a predator. And this show, this show, it is just, it's really something else. So they get these predators to meet them at a decoy house. And then when they show up, Chris Hansen steps out and he's like, why don't you take a seat? Why don't you take a seat right over there? <laughs> And the predator will make up a ton of lies. Uh, usually they lie. I'm going to say, I don't know, nine times out of ten they make up a lot of lies. There's usually one guy who tells the whole truth. And he's like, yep, yeah, I'm caught. But anyways, nine out of, out of ten times they make up a ton of lies. And they have a very uncomfortable conversation as Chris Hansen reads out the messages between the, let's say, 40-year-old man and the 11-year-old girl or boy that the online decon de decon decoy was posing as and he'll read out all these messages and they're always very sexually graphic and it will make you like recoil in disgust the amount of times my face does the uh when I'm watching it and anyways I'm getting very far off topic if you haven't seen to catch a predator i highly recommend watching it because as soon as those men leave that decoy house they are arrested by police and they are charged and they are put on a sex offender registry so it's it's really chris hansen does amazing work in to catch a predator i guess is, is what i'm trying to say so anyways chris hansen he also covered 
this story, the story we're talking about today, he also covered that in 2016, 2017, and he interviews this anonymous man and also the hostage negotiator, Cameron. The captivity survival experts video that he puts out on this website looking for Sherry, they're him, they're Cameron saying, I don't know who you are or where you are, but if you return Sherry within 100 hours, we will give you $50,000 if she is safe and back with her family. So, okay, this is the offer they're putting out there, but it must be within 100 hours from the time that video is posted. This attempt, it yields no results. So after the 100 hours is up and Sherry still isn't home, the anonymous donor says, okay, let's double it. Here's $100,000, but it's not for the abductors. No, no. It's for the public now to find the abductors and to find Sherry. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So they're getting rid of this reverse ransom and saying, okay, public, okay, American public with your guns, if you find them and Sherry, you get $100,000. So now they have the public essentially hunting for whoever took Sherry. I I just cannot believe this case. And I'm I'm just getting started, okay? This case is just getting started. Cameron, he does this. He posts another video and basically says, I got a hundred grand. If you can find these monsters and the woman they stole, this money is yours. So now I guess it's kind of a manhunt happening, which is quite a bold move I thought but that's what is happening at this point in this case after this $100,000 is offered up something happens that shocks everyone Sherry is discovered but it has nothing to do with the reward so 4 30 in the morning along a stretch of highway known as the I-5, 146 miles from where she was last seen, 22 days earlier, she's discovered waving down a truck with a pillowcase. She's alive. She's back. She's badly beaten. She's lost a lot of weight. Her hair has been chopped off. Her nose was broken. She had branding on her right shoulder. Uh, She had rashes on her body and bruising all over her face. She had a chain around her waist. She had uh, one hand was somehow bound behind her back to this chain. She had binds over her wrists and ankles as well as ligature marks. Her pelvis was bruised. Her legs were bruised. And she had a burn on her left forearm. Sherry was in really bad condition to say the least, but she was alive. The pillowcase she used to flag down the truck, she claimed it was placed over her head by the abductor when being freed. And when she was dropped off, she used, she had one hand, she got one hand free. She got that bag off her head and she used that bag to eventually flag down a truck. This would have been a scene straight out of a horror movie for this truck driver It reminds me of, I believe it's the Toy Box Killer, which is a case I may or may not cover. It's fucking 
brutal. It's, uh, I can say it's hands down one of, I'm going to say top five, one of the most disgusting cases I've ever heard about is the toy box killer. But one of his victims gets away and she's got a chain on her and she's running down the road and she gets picked up and saved. Anyways, we're not talking about the toy box killer right now. This is just what this reminded me of. So this truck driver, he sees 34-year-old Sherry Papini, 4.30 in the morning, waving him down. He would have seen this beat, badly beaten woman with a chain around her on the side of the road, 4.30 in the morning, desperately seeking help. And this truck driver, he stops to help Sherry and he calls police i believe an ambulance was called as well sherry she's brought to the hospital luckily there were no signs of sexual assault no, no nothing to say that any any rape had happened and also there were no drugs found in her system so she wasn't drugged um according to the toxicology report uh they got back from the hospital her husband is notified that she's been found and Keith is relieved not only because Sherry's been found and she can come home but in that same area recently three other women had gone missing and they were never found so the fact that his wife is back 22 days later that's a miracle that's rare that hardly ever happens this was huge so keith he went to the hospital to see sherry and he was shocked at her appearance she was badly beaten she looked as though she had just crawled up from the pits of hell but she was alive and she could talk but she wouldn't talk to the police instead the police had to give keith a recording device some type of audio recording device to do the interview for them and what she tells keith is a fucking horror story she tells keith the day she went out for her run she was approached by a black suv with tinted windows in the SUV were two Hispanic women who waved her over and said something along the lines of, can you help me? Or can you come over here and help me? Something like this. When Sherry walked towards the vehicle, she said one of the women pulled a gun on her and they told her, they instructed her to, to drop her phone, to leave her phone on the ground. The woman also told Sherry she didn't want to kill her. After Sherry left her phone on the ground, so she said she puts the phone on the ground she got into the vehicle where some seats had been taken out some of some of the seats or all of the seats or there was one seat there was something to do with the seats but um she said yeah so there was minimal seats in this vehicle once inside the vehicle sherry couldn't remember exactly when the woman put a bag or or something over her head but she said they did and she thinks they may have tased her as well and she said one of the uh women stuck her with something so she says stuck her with she says stuck me with something and by that i think she means a needle perhaps with an unknown substance in it perhaps with something to make her fall asleep because she 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 did say the next thing she remembers is having no clothing on she said the vehicle smelled really bad. Like it had a really bad odor to it. Like uh, she described it as the smell of sewage. 
and she was drifting in and out of consciousness. Therefore, she couldn't remember how long the drive was, if they changed elevation, where they went, any landmarks that she couldn't see. She was, she had something over her head. She's going in and out of consciousness. They stuck her with something. It sounds like a real, a, a real nightmare. That is, yeah, that's a, that's a nightmare. So Sherry described her abductors the best that she could. But she said they were careful to conceal their faces. At first with sunglasses, then with bandanas or or a cloth or sometimes even lace, like a lace cloth, which I'm like, okay, fancy abductors. Um, She could tell one of the women was younger than the other one and the, the younger one had curly brown hair and she refers to this one as the little one. Uh, and the the little one, she had thin eyebrows and the other woman, the older woman had more like bushy eyebrows and, and straight black hair. She said they would speak mostly Spanish and the older one would hit the younger one often. And it was almost like the younger one was doing something she didn't want to do. And this older one was, was quite abusive to the younger one. When the women got Sherry to the location she was held in, she said they brought her into a room where the windows were boarded up. And in this room was a closet she was put in and held there with a chain around her waist that was connected to a metal pole and cable. So I read this setup a few times of what she said uh, to her husband here because it was recorded and then transcribed and then I got a hold of the court record. So I was reading this over and over again. And I was having a hard time with the logistics of that. So um, I apologize if that doesn't make sense. But I was having a hard time seeing this um, layout. So Sherry, she said when she was locked in this closet, in this windowless room, the women gave her a bucket with kitty litter in it to use as a toilet and eventually she was giving a, given a bit more space and she could make make it to the bed like she couldn't she still had this chain on which would allow her some mobility around the room and the chain she she could make it to the bed but it it didn't have enough length for her to get to the door if she did something to make the abductors angry, then the older one would put her back in the closet. So it seems like they were trying to control her by using this space to make her compliant. And again, we hear this quite a lot in true crime cases with people who are being held against their will. Um, so I was like, okay, all right. Sherry describes to the best of her ability where she may have been held but all she can say is that she could hear birds um the women played loud music all the time so she you know she couldn't really hear much else and she knew they had a fireplace because she could hear it and she could smell it but she said it was always cold she said it was always cold she was always cold and this made investigators think that she was held in the mountains somewhere Sherry said the woman would feed her rice and tortillas and sometimes an apple, but she hated the food uh, and as she describes it, it was crap. That's the word she used to describe the food she was fed. The abductors would bring Sherry her meals by simply 
opening the door to the room that she was being held in, sliding it in, and then slamming the, the door shut. She also said sometimes they would give her more food if she was complying and, and not causing trouble or making noise. They would allow her to shower, but the younger one, or the little one, would have to stand guard while she did well, she did so. And she also said this is when she would wash her underwear and claimed that they had at one point, um, although she, when she was found, she was wearing her original underwear from the day she went missing. And she said she would wash them in the shower. But then she says at one point, they put her in, a, in, a, in an adult diaper and cut her hair, which is very disturbing. She then goes on to talk about the branding on her shoulder and she says the women did that because uh sherry had made an escape attempt but then in the same interview i guess when her husband is is recording her she says that they branded her because the women told her quote that's what the buyer likes so she gives two reasons for this this branding one for an escape attempt and then the other reason is because that's what the buyer likes now mentioning a buyer it automatically makes investigators believe that this is a human trafficking situation and the fbi they are investigating this and they spend a lot of time and resources trying to track down these two hispanic women so just remember that for later but why wouldn't Sherry speak to the investigators and the FBI about this? I said she wouldn't speak to police. She would only speak to her husband. Sherry said she was told by two women that the police were in on this. And that's why she didn't want to speak to them. And she would only do this interview with her husband. She didn't trust the police. Now, this reminded me of another case. <laughs> Once you've done so many true crime podcasts, it, things from other cases really remind you of a ton of other cases and again this is a case that I haven't covered yet but there is a case in Australia where a young female backpacker is trying to fill her I think it's like eight the 88 days regional work to get a second year visa so you have to work remote you have to work on farms I fucking hate this rule or whatever that the government put in place in Australia I think it subjects women to dangerous situations because it's it's not governed any you know I'm not even going to go into it and but I don't support it at all and it actually happened where a young female backpacker was trying to do her regional work to get her second year visa she meets a farmer online in a rural area he says yes I can sign you off on your your rural farming working days just come out here and she goes out there alone this guy picks her up drives her to his property uh chains her up in an old pig barn um just does really terrible things to her he tells her if you escape all of the police in this rural area are in on this and they'll just bring you back to me and then I'll basically torture you so this woman's terrified of police but she eventually escapes this is a crazy case uh, yeah I, okay I might cover this in full detail because this case is is so crazy and when she does escape and she makes it back into this small town she's literally running from police and she's a missing person so police are looking for her and every time she sees a cop car she starts running eventually you know she learns the truth but it's such a terrifying situation so yes abductors do do this this is a strategy they do use they'll say oh the police are in on it if you run away they'll find you it's going to make things worse so i have heard this before 
it, you know, so at first I wasn't like, oh, wow, the police are in on this. I thought, oh, this is a tactic used by the abductor. But anyways, this is why Sherry, she was not wanting police around. She didn't trust that they weren't in on her abduction. She didn't know who to trust. She was like, no police. I don't want them around me. I don't want to be alone with them. Okay. So this brings me to how Sherry got away. How did Sherry get away? Well, this is what she says happened. Sherry couldn't understand the two women who were holding her against her will. She didn't speak Spanish. She only knew a few words. And she claims that the younger Spanish woman, the little one, wanted to perhaps get Sherry medicine. And the older woman was, she wasn't going to let that happen. So during the argument, there was an argument one day and Sherry, she heard a gunshot. And then she heard the young woman leave for a long time. How she knew it was the young one, I don't know, but this is what she says. So upon returning, Sherry, she's taken out of the room, uh, pillowcases put over her head, and she is she's driven for a while. When the vehicle stops, she is released from the vehicle and she feels one of her hands being freed from behind her back. So it's clipped to that chain. She said she heard like a clip or something. As the vehicle's driving away, she could she had one hand free. She could get that pillowcase off her head. And that's the pillowcase she was uh, shaking, um, shaking around to alert a vehicle to stop and help her. But first, before she flagged down a vehicle, Sherry said she ran to a nearby church, but nobody was there. So then that's when she went to the road and, and desperately flagged down that truck. And yeah, the, the truck did stop police were called she was brought to hospital so we've kind of done a full circle now it was at the hospital her clothes the clothes sherry was found in it gets sent away for dna dna testing when found she was wearing the same underwear from the day that she had been abducted uh she came she claims her original clothing that she was wearing when she was out jogging that day when she was taken those clothes had been taken away from her and she was given this new pair of jogging pants and a and a sweatshirt by her abductors there is dna found on the underwear and on the jogging pants but it's male dna so i didn't hear what kind of dna this was i didn't know if this was I don't know what, I don't know. I don't know if it's semen. I don't know if it's blood. I don't know if it's saliva, but on her underwear and on her jogging pants, there is a unidentified male DNA contributor. Sherry never said anything about a man being present. She only talked about the two Hispanic women. So where did this male DNA come from? And it didn't match her husband's DNA, by the way. They checked. It, it wasn't her husband's. How her husband's DNA would have got on these new jogging pants the abductors gave her. I don't know, but uh, you know, okay. So they checked anyways. They wanted to rule that out and they did. By November 28th, Sherry, she's willing to speak to investigators, but her husband, he had to remain with her the entire time. Okay. She wouldn't do it alone. She, so she still wasn't trusting to be alone with, with police. This time she gives a bit more detail, like what song was playing in her headphones when the SUV pulled up. And for some reason, I found that interesting. I was like, what song were you listening to? And the answer to that is she was listening to her and her husband's wedding song, a song by Michael Bublé called Everything, which I don't know the, this song at all. I, I have no idea what that song sounds like. I 
I actually only know Michael Bublé's Christmas album. So, you know, I don't know, maybe something for me to look up. So some of the details, they seem to differ from what she said to her husband previously, such as uh, when she was first brought into the room she was being held in, she wasn't in a closet when she's retelling this to investigators and she wasn't wearing chains. Okay, so this has this detail has changed. It was when she ripped a board off the window that they chained her up. So this escape attempt, I guess. She, yeah, got up, tried to rip a board off the window. They heard her, they came in, they chained her up. So she couldn't try to get out this window. She tells investigators that when she first woke up in the room, her wrists were zip tied behind her back and she tried to break them. And when that didn't work, she tried to chew them off. So there's a question here. How can someone try to chew zip ties off if their hands are behind their back? You know what I mean? So I was like, what? What do you, what? Okay. And investigators, they thought the same thing. Did she somehow get her wrists from behind her to in front of her? We don't know. This is never explained. It was never clarified. But she said she was successful in chewing the zip ties off. So I don't know. I don't know. She also talks about trying to hit one of the women during one of the showers she was allowed, which led to everything being removed from the bathroom, like a towel rack. She told them how she was punished for her escape attempt, but this time she said they burned her arm, not the branding. So little details like this are getting, they're changing, they're changing. And more and more details were coming out and things were just getting confusing and none of it was leading investigators to anything. Like nothing. They had nothing. So March 2nd, 2017, Sherry agrees to an interview with a forensic FBI agent. But this time, just her and not her husband. In this interview, her story changes a little bit more. She claims she was tied up when uh, the two women got her into the SUV. And when she came to in the room she was being held in, she was on a bed with her hands zip tied in front of her not behind her and this is how she was able to chew the zip tie off and then jump up to the boards on the window and then start ripping them off that's when the abductors heard her doing this came into the room and hit her with something and it was when she came to again after this hit uh, that she had a chain around her waist the shower story gets a little bit different here as well. And Sherry claims she jumped on the abductor and smashed the abductor's head. Man, I've been saying that word over and over again. It's losing meaning. Abductor, abductor. Am I? <laughs> it's freaking me out. Anyway, she said she smashed the younger abductor's head on the toilet. And it was when that the younger abductor had lowered her gun that she took this opportunity uh, to do this. So in the first story she told before that she she had hit the the younger wo woman who was holding her hostage with something. And little bits like this were just changing. More and more details are added in or they're changing. And, and I, I mean, this report was so detailed that I read I could just go on for so long. Between March 31st, 2017 and May 7th, 2018, which is what, like a year and three months, Keith 
Sherry's husband, we know Keith, Sherry's husband, he and Sherry, they're texting with FBI agents numerous times to update them on things that Sherry has remembered because she's in therapy now and, and maybe therapy helps her remember things or when she's out shopping, she sees things and they trigger a memory or whatever. So over the next like year and three months, they're texting these FBI agents more and more details. Uh, Keith, he had contacted the FBI saying, hey, sure, remembers details of the room she was held in. And, you know, she thinks there was wood paneling on the walls and there was like an orange shag carpet and just describing all kinds of stuff in the room that she was held in, including the bathroom and, and small details. And he also included pictures that Sherry had drawn that she had drew about this room that she was held in there are other texts of sherry saying oh i remember what they burned me with and here's a picture of a similar spoon they used and keith texts oh sherry remembers the gun that the women had after seeing one and we were out shopping and she saw this gun and then she shut down mentally and it really hurt her and she was like that's the gun that they had used and this went on and on and on and on for over a year. So also Sherry, she describes this coffee table she was tied to and being branded by the women. She even went as far as to find a similar table online and then send the FBI a picture of it and being like, this was kind of like the table. Again, though, nothing is leading investigators to any possible leads of this perhaps human trafficking ring that's operating and the FBI they were looking hard the police and FBI they were still trying to track down this black or dark colored SUV with these two Hispanic women and Sherry she assists with making a composite sketch over this period of time of of the women the Hispanic women that took her and the FBI they're putting a ton of effort in into her case the composite sketches they're released showing two Hispanic women wearing bandanas over their nose and mouth, but the hair, eyes, forehead, and eyebrows are all showing. And still, no one recognizes these two women. Okay, let's just jump to 2019. This is where things take a crazy turn. When Sherry was taken to hospital, when she was first found on November 24th, 2016, Okay, so when she was first taken to hospital, her clothes were examined and male DNA was recovered from her underwear and her sweatpants. And this DNA was run through CODIS, but no matches came up. And it wasn't her husband's DNA. Okay, remember all of that? Well, I am about to tell you something absolutely wild. Okay, familia DNA. That's it. That's all I'm telling you. No, no. So the Familia DNA, it was accessible to investigators and they put it in a request to test that DNA against DNA stored in this system. That's right. The companies that you pay to test your DNA and find your long lost relatives or uh, get a breakdown of your genetic makeup. You know what I'm talking about. Companies like 23andMe, I think they're called... These companies 
have your DNA on file. And guess what? They can share it with the police to build a big ginormous DNA data bank. Even if you have never been arrested, the police will now have your DNA. You don't even have to submit it. Even if just someone in your family submits their DNA for this DNA testing to see if they have any relatives out there or to see what their genetic makeup is or whatever, where they come from, whatever, they can link that to a person through family treeing. Family treeing. That's right. I don't know if that's how you would put it, but basically that's what they did. And this has actually uh, led to solving cold cases in the past. Who was it? What's What am I thinking of? What's that case I'm thinking of? Not the Green River Killer. Who am I thinking of? Uh, 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 uh. Hold on. I have to look this up now. This is going to bother me. Yeah, I was wrong. It's, it's not the Green River still Killer. It's the Golden State Killer. So this was used. Uh, this was used then to. Okay, I've really thrown myself off by looking that up. But yes. Okay. So this technique, it is genius i'm sure companies like 23 and me and and all these companies that are like hey submit your dna this will be fun we can help find long lost relatives and we can tell you things about your genetic makeup blah 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 blah. i'm sure it started off like that but then police were like whoa you guys have a huge dna data bank like can we put in requests to use this and that actually happens now which i think is genius because it is solving cold cases March, okay, back to it. March 19th, 2020, the results come back. Investigators get a hit on familia, (laughs) word is kind of hard, DNA from this database. It's not the owner of the DNA found on, on Sherry's underwear or on her sweatpants, but it's from a man who is related to that man. And the man in this databank, he has two sons. So they look at these two sons and this was a huge break and wait until you hear who it belongs to. They look into this man's sons and one of them is Sherry's ex-boyfriend. What the hell is happening at this point? You're like, what? What the hell? Why is he in what's happening? So when Sherry had first gone missing, there were two male numbers in her phone. I will say right now, neither of these two numbers ended up being this ex-boyfriend's numbers, but there were two male numbers in her phone disguised under female names. And these were men Sherry had past relations with, uh, and one of whom while she was married to Keith and police went to interview these men. And that first guy, he was like, yeah, we met in 2011 and we spent the weekend together and we've been in contact ever since. But he was cleared. He didn't have anything to do with abducting Sherry, even though it kind of looked like he did at first because there were messages found between him and Sherry to meet up one day before her disappearance. So, you know, it was really looking like him for a minute, but he had nothing to do with her disappearance though okay so just trust me on this he had nothing to do with it it really looks like he does but he didn't the other guy was like yeah we met in 2001 she's a crazy liar and he was also cleared of having anything to do with sherry's abduction so then whose dna did this 
belong to? Who was this other ex-boyfriend? The ex-boyfriend the DNA belonged to, he was never named in any documents I read, so I will just refer to him as her ex-boyfriend. Actually, I did hear his name in the interrogation video I watched, um, but I'm not going to say it. I'll just refer to as ex-boyfriend. The way police matched this ex-boyfriend's DNA to the DNA found on Sherry's clothing was by going through his garbage and collecting stuff in a true detective style. And it did match. It was a 100% match. They had actually collected and used a Honest Honey iced tea bottle from this ex-boyfriend's garbage. And that's how they made the match. From an Honest Honey iced tea bottle. I found that ironic if this was like a cheesy TV show, then I would say, and, it, and they made the discovery from an honest honey iced tea bottle because guess what, honey, things are about to get honest. <laughs> um, that sounds like something that would be on CSI Miami, whatever. So was this guy's Sherry's abductor? And if so... How did she not know that he was behind this or if he was in on it? Police, they review this guy's family social media. I think it was his brother's social media. And they see a picture of a coffee table matching the description of the one Sherry said she was tied to while she was branded by the two Hispanic women. Eventually, police have enough evidence to go to this ex-boyfriend. And he's like, well, you're here. So buckle up because I've got a story for you. Remember, this is now four years later. Okay, four fucking years later. This ex-boyfriend says, Sherry was never abducted by two female Hispanic women. She was with me the entire time. And oh yeah, all those injuries, she did those to herself. And she asked me to help. And I refused for the most part. What? This guy is saying, Sherry's making everything up. She was never kidnapped and she was at his house willingly for those 22 days that she was missing. He tells police that he and Sherry knew each other since the age of 13 or 14. So like a young age like that, 13, 13 or 14, I believe he said. And they had dated, they broke up. In 2015, they reconnected after he had sent Sherry's parents a box of her stuff that he had found when cleaning his his house or something. I guess this guy and Sherry's parents, they must have known each other very well because when investigators are looking into his past, they find that he had lived at an address uh, that belonged to Sherry's parents. So whatever that means exactly, I'm unsure. Did he and Sherry live together there or did he live with her parents or did he rent a house from them? Again, I don't know, but this is what investigators found. Once Sherry and this ex-boyfriend reconnected, Sherry told this guy that her husband, Keith, was very abusive to her and would rape and beat her. Sherry was asking her ex-boyfriend for help. She even went as far to say as the police were doing nothing to help her, which that would sound like there must have been some kind of of domestic abuse reported if she claims the police weren't helping her, right? 
wrong. It should be noted here that this is the only time where we hear about Keith in a bad light. There is no evidence that Keith was beating and raping Sherry. Okay, this is the only time. There is no police records of domestic violence between Keith and Sherry. There's nothing to say that this is true. Okay, and it doesn't come up anywhere else but here about what she told her ex-boyfriend. This ex-boyfriend, he hears this, he wants to help Sherry. And eventually, Sherry comes up with a plan to run away with him. I think she actually told him immediately that she wanted to run away with him or something. The two, they had been communicating with burner phones that Sherry requested they get. So there was no evidence on their legit phones. And I guess this was proven by police that these phones did exist. Uh, The phones, I guess... I don't know if the phones themselves were located, but they somehow did a location search on these phones and and they found that each phone coincided with Sherry getting into a rented vehicle with this ex-boyfriend the day that she was quote unquote abducted. That's right. If you haven't pieced it together yet, Sherry had lied about everything. I know this is hard to believe. This is, th- <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm just gonna keep going. Okay, all those injuries they were done to herself, aside from the branding, which he did help her do. And she also asked him to hit a puck at her, I guess, which he did. But he thought it was odd. He didn't think any. He was like, why is she hurting herself so much? She cut her own hair. She smashed up her own face. She burned herself. She starved herself. And she somehow got this guy's DNA on her underwear and and sweatpants. That is never really made clear. As he says, the two never had sex when Cherry was staying with him. And he actually passed a polygraph test. And they asked him, did you guys have sex? And he said no, and he he passed that. The jogging suit that Sherry was wearing when she was discovered, he had actually bought that for her because she she wanted it. Um, It just, uh, it's baffling. So this ex-boyfriend goes on to say that Sherry was the one who asked him to put boards over the window of the bedroom. So there were boards, but she insisted on it she wanted this she didn't want anybody to see in her window to see her in there so they were staying in like a two-bedroom apartment I guess or and um he says he slept on the couch and and she slept in his room but who was in that second room that was never made clear we don't know that did he have a housemate I don't know anyways he said she stayed in his room a lot with the door shut and would come out from time to time to to clean or the two would talk or they hugged from time to time but mostly she just liked to stay in that room alone with the door closed this is just an absolute crazy court document to read and I have linked it in my show notes it's about 50 pages long and the details are immense So I recommend reading it if you want to get a full description of everything I'm covering. I had to really condense a lot. Otherwise, this could be a miniseries. I'm not even joking, you guys. I could have did a fucking miniseries on this. There is so much 
information out there. There's the court documents, there's the interrogation. It's just, there's just so much. This ex-boyfriend said that by Thanksgiving, which was November 24th, the day Sherry was discovered, Sherry, she had asked to be dropped off. So the ex-boyfriend, previous to that day, she had asked him. So he gets a rental car, which he again got a friend to rent for him because the first time he also got this this friend to rent him for this. And he dropped Sherry off like she had asked by the side of a dark country road. Okay. Police, they want to verify this. They find these rental cars and the mileage and the dates they all check out. Police and investigators, they check out every detail that this ex-boyfriend is telling in his story and everything checked out. Everything. Also, the guy's cousin and mother knew Sherry was staying with him while she was reportedly missing. So what the hell is going on here? Why would this guy go along with Sherry's wacky plan? Her wacky plan. (laughs) I laugh because it's just so I can't even believe it like I'm I'm actually blown away this plan she had it wasted so much time and resources and it is what what was in it for Sherry that's what I kept wondering what is in it for her why is she doing this well there was the 50 grand from the GoFundMe that the Papini family kept and they did stuff like pay off credit card bills with it And also Sherry, she got all her therapy paid for by the Victims Assistant Program, which was thousands and thousands of dollars meant for real victims. And this will come back up later because obviously the government is pissed off when Sherry is exposed as a liar. They're going to want their money back. When police go to look at this ex-boyfriend's apartment, It resembles the room Sherry told FBI she was locked and chained in for 22 days. The 22 days she was missing. (laughs) And this just shows us she took bits and pieces from reality and weaved them into the fabric of her fictional story. Here is something that really sealed the deal for me. This, I was like, what? Oh, the fuck okay so the ex-boyfriend said that a few days into sherry being at his home she requested he go buy her a wood burning tool so he went out and he got it for her she then asked him to burn something into her skin aka the branding sherry went missing november 2nd investigators discover that on november 6th Sherry pinned a wood-burning tool on her Pinterest under a secret board. What? So that would have been around the same time she asked her ex-boyfriend to go buy this for her. What the actual fuck is happening here? That is so messed up. Also, this just proves she had access to her Pinterest account when she was apparently abducted by human traffickers by human traffickers and she was on pinterest being like oh this looks like a fun hobby i have a phone and i'm not going to call 911 instead i'm going to post things to my secret pinterest board no obviously she was not abducted obviously everything she said is a lie and she found this wood burning tool and she's like oh this is cute this would go really well with my fucking 
fake story I'm going to give to the FBI. Let's pin this on a secret board. <laughs> oh, so um, there's just a mountain of evidence showing that Sherry was not abducted and that she had actually ran away to hide with her ex-boyfriend in his home. And again, just have a look at the court records. I, I linked it if you need more information. I, I can't I, j- I can't fit it in to one episode. Even if I made this episode two hours long, I would still be like, check out those court records. There's a lot of details in there. So yes, this ex-boyfriend, he um he did he did help her do that that branding. Um, let's just take a quick look into Sherry Papini's past and see what some people are, are saying about her in regards to her truth-telling or should I say a lack of truth-telling. There's something I'm not even going to go into, but I will mention it. Um, I'm not even going to go into this, but there's a post that she allegedly wrote or did not write on a skinhead forum because this is just a whole other situation that I I just I really didn't have time to go down this rabbit hole it wasn't making sense to me I was like okay I don't know what's going on with this but basically it was a pretty pretty it was this this she writes a whole story I did hear the story it was pretty racist against Latin Americans it um it was allegedly a fabricated story and she claimed someone had hacked her account and posted it but I'm, I'm not even going to touch that I just it's, <laughs> it's just a whole other thing that just people don't think her account was hacked is what I'm saying here so it was just kind of a a look at her her character so let's just talk about you know people that knew her her first husband, who he also remains unnamed, um, he claimed him and Cherry got married not because they loved each other, okay? They didn't get married because they were actually in a relationship. They got married because she wanted to use his military health insurance. Uh, and the two, again, they never lived together. She just wanted to benefit from his health insurance that was provided to him through the military. She made up a story saying that she had complications from when she donated her eggs or something like this and she needed health care to I don't know I guess pay for whatever needed to be done so whether or not that was true I nobody really knows well I mean somebody does and this man also said that Sherry had confided in him that her family had abused her that allegation was never found to be true. So whether it is fact or fiction, I don't know. But this man did hear later on that Sherry was known for fabricating stories and just being an overall liar. Investigators, they go a bit further back in her past and they interview some of her friends. And these friends are like, oh yeah, she used to lie a lot about being abused and she even ran away once to Southern California when she was 16. So again we have more people saying Sherry lied a lot specifically about abuse and also ran away once to Southern California. Does that sound familiar? Because oh yes Southern California is where her ex-boyfriend lived. The one she stayed with when she said she was abducted by two Hispanic women and also I forgot to say that the ex-boyfriend's cousin did actually see Sherry there 
at the time she was supposedly missing, saw her in the ex-boyfriend's apartment and she was completely free. Not chained, not zip tied, totally free. There, not against her will at all. There, because of her will. She wanted to be there. She chose that. Remember the men in Sherry's phone that were under women's names? Well, the other guy who she didn't meet in 2016, there was two guys. One guy she met in 2016. Well, not that guy, but the guy she met in 2001, who was also in her phone under a woman's name. And this guy told police, Sherry's a known liar. (laughs) He actually said she is attention hungry and would make up stories for attention. The two met in 2001 at a Friday Night Alive youth program, and they had even dated a little while. When they broke up, Sherry was also making up lies about him involving abuse. Police were like, okay, let's talk to the person who ran this program. And they did. They found the organizer of this Friday Night Live youth program. This organizer... He tells him the same damn thing. He tells him Sherry would make up stories for attention. That's basically what he said. And it it made some people uncomfortable with her in the program because Sherry was, she, Sherry, quote, was good at creating different realities for people so that they would see what she wanted them to see, which got her really good attention, unquote. And that is a, that's a direct quote out of these court documents. So <laughs> all I got to say is yikes. All this is making Sherry look pretty bad, but how are police going to move forward with this? How are they going to confront Sherry with what they know? Because Sherry doesn't know that police know all of this stuff. She doesn't know. Investigators bring Sherry in for an interrogation, although they tell her it's to look at some pictures of possible suspects. She gets there and she's looking really hard at these pictures and she's like, oh, I don't know, maybe pass me that piece of paper, let me cover up their mouth and nose and maybe I will recognize them. And investigators, they let her play out this acting game for a while. Investigators, who are the FBI, by the way, had reminded Sherry at the start, it's a crime to lie to them. And she's like, yeah, duh, I know. But she keeps lying and they know it, but she doesn't know they know. You can you can watch this whole interrogation online. I posted it in my show notes. So they showed her pictures of her ex-boyfriend's coffee table and they asked her, isn't this like the coffee table you described to us? And suddenly she can't remember details any longer, even though she had just confirmed what she thought the coffee table looked like moments before being confronted with the picture of her ex-boyfriend's coffee table. And shit like this just goes on and on and on during this interrogation. It is hard to watch. It is hard to watch knowing that she is sitting there lying to people who know that she's lying, but she won't give it up. She's a real piece of work, this woman. Then things get really heated when investigators show Sherry pictures of her ex-boyfriend's home. And they say, well, this is exactly what you described. This is the room and and this is the bathroom and this is the same layout and this is the closet and this is the bar in the closet and this is that piece you tried to unscrew that you said you cut your hand on and this is the window and these are these wooden boards and, you know, they were like, this is very similar. But Sherry, she keeps making up a ton of excuses about how it's similar but it's not the same or whatever. Finally... They say, we know 
this is where you were. We have people who saw you there and knew that you were staying there. Sherry's husband, he looks happy. He looks relieved. He's rubbing her arm. He, you know, he's basically like, yeah, they got him. And Sherry, she's just sitting there quiet with her hand on her chin, slumped over in her chair. And to me, it is very clear her husband knew nothing about this because he looks happy. He looks happy that the FBI were onto whoever did this. But then when you look at Sherry, she looks concerned. She looks scared. Her lies are about to be exposed and she knows it. And she's thinking, oh, fuck, my lie is about to crumble hard right now. I have linked this interrogation video in my show notes if you want to watch it. I don't have time to go over every detail because again, this case would be a mini series with how much information there is. There's just so much. You want to watch the interrogation video. I think it's like an hour and a half long. There's a part two, which is like another half hour. Go ahead and watch those. Sherry, she requests a moment alone with her husband at this point and they allow it. They're like, okay, be alone with your husband for a minute. We'll be right outside. When they come back, the questioning starts again. And when confronted with all the evidence about the fact that she was at her ex-boyfriend's home, she cries. And this is where it gets kind of confusing because then she starts saying, I don't want to give her up. She helped me. She's the reason I see my children every day. Yes, they, you know, she's saying, oh, I'm not going to give up the the younger Latina woman who dropped me off because I believe that she saved me and I'm not going to give her up. It's a lie, Sherry. We know it's a lie. Give it up. But she keeps clinging to this and she's clinging to it. Okay. Then she starts saying, then they're like, we're going to say a name. Like, do you want your husband in the room? Whatever. Her husband stays in the room. And it's like a whole back and forth for a minute. And they say the name of her ex-boyfriend. And they're like, we know that this DNA that was found on your clothes belongs to him. And she's like, there's no way. There is no way it was him. <laughs> yeah, we know he didn't abduct you. They didn't say that. But ugh. so now she is trying to play this like shocked really large sad emotion or it's it's just crazy that you know they're trying to tell her that her ex-boyfriend abducted her but that's not what they're saying at all but that's what she's trying to spin it into she's still claiming she was abducted by these two hispanic women all this evidence is coming out it's fucking crazy i don't know how the investigators keep all this straight but they do it's just a wild interrogation video. Ultimately, the evidence is just too much for investigators to ignore. I mean, it's too much for anybody to ignore. Oh, there was also something I wanted to to bring up is that remember when she got put into hospital, they did a toxicology report on her and there was no narcotics or any drugs found in her system. Well, Sherry said when that younger Hispanic woman dropped her off the day that she was freed, she said that that woman had drugged her. And she said at the, when she was being held, she didn't use the word drugged. She kept saying like when she was being held and I think when she was being dropped off, there was a brown liquid, a brown bitter liquid that they were giving her and then it would make her fall asleep. So that sounds like it would be a drug. And she also said that they stuck her with something when they 
picked her up. So there was quite a few times where she had said or indicated that there was possible drugging happening to her but there was nothing that came up in that toxicology report and I just wanted to throw that in there because I thought that was also very compelling to this case to just be like well if you were drugged it would be in your system bottom line Sherry Papini was not abducted she was not held against her will and she was not tortured and abused by anyone but herself so what happens legally now well, the $49,000 the family raised in the in the GoFundMe, it was never given back to the donors. And it had been deposited into Keith and Cherry's personal bank account. And I think it was 11 grand was uh, went towards paying off their credit card bills, and then the rest was all for them. So that's <laughs> that's quite a profit in case you didn't catch that. But legally, there was nothing there. Yeah, it was really shit, but legally the Papinis could do whatever they wanted with the money that people donated to their GoFundMe. <laughs> Basically, Sherry made $49,000 in 22 days from going and staying at her ex-boyfriend's house and beating herself up. Crazy. Was her motive for attention? Was it to... Uh, gain from generous sympathetic donors was it to try and sell her story as a movie or a book I just don't know why she did this but I mean she clearly got a ton of attention this story was massive it was worldwide it went everywhere it blew up in the media she made fifty thousand dollars she clearly she clearly made gains from this and her, her past would tell us given the people that were interviewed that she did like to lie about abuse to get attention. Sherry Papini, she had applied for funding from the Victims Assistant Program, which knowing what we know now makes that really fucked up. There are real victims who need that funding, and she is not one of them. She had applied six days after she was found on the side of the road back in 2016, and since then had used, wait for it, $30,000 from the Victims Assistance Fund for therapy, for the ambulance ride. Um, you know, the day she was brought to hospital, she took an ambulance there. That was covered. And I saw a detailed list of where all this money was going. This was in the court documents. $1,000 of that was used to buy blinds for her home. This woman is the worst. She's the worst. $30,000 that could have been put towards help for actual victims. And she's putting blinds in her house. And going to therapy. I mean, clearly she needed therapy. But I mean, uh, she didn't need any money from that victim's assistance fund. Okay. This, to me, is the worst part of this case. And this is why I think she should be put in prison. Not to mention for wasting the time and resources of the FBI. She wasted so much of their time. So much of their time. Spoiler alert, though, Sherry Papini is in prison right now. So we'll get to that in a minute. Finally, on March 3rd of 2022, she was arrested 
Because remember, the FBI told her that lying to them is against the law. And she went on and lied nonstop to them. (laughs) And she was arrested also for faking her abduction, for this fake kidnapping, this hoax that she had concocted. Once arrested, it took her six weeks to sign a plea deal. And the plea deal read that she organized the entire hoax. She eventually did admit to it. Uh, Maybe they told her the plea deal would get her less time in prison or something. I don't know because she seemed pretty stuck on her story. But she did sign this. She did admit to lying by signing this plea deal. And she ended up getting 18 months in prison and being fined $300,000 in September of 2022. A year and a half in prison, it doesn't seem long enough. And she might have the opportunity to be released earlier. I hope she pays back the victim assistance fund At the very least, I hope she gives them $30,000 because she owes that for sure. She costs the taxpayers so much more than 300 grand, I would guess. So she should at least have to pay back the the victim's fund. Where the $300,000 is going is, I don't know. She just wasted a ton of taxpayers' money back to the government, I would assume. I thought that the anonymous donor who we had talked about at the beginning of this episode, I thought he was going to come back around and be like, oh, by the way, he got all his money back, I should say. that So the 50 grand, he got that back, and then it doubled. He, he didn't lose any money in this, so that's good for him. But that was just a weird thing that happened in this case. That never comes back around. We never find out who that guy is. He was just a guy that was like, hey, let's try this reverse ransom thing. Like, who is this guy? (laughs) You just don't know. That was so, that that threw me off. Because I was like, is this going to be the guy that did it? Like, was he the kidnapper? Like, I had no idea. But no, he was just a nice guy that wanted to help. I'm coming to the end of this podcast now, and I just, I'm wondering about Keith. I'm wondering what he thinks about all of this. Because I I think for a minute there, he was like, no, there's no way she's lying. Like, I think she was, he was really, he was really sticking with her. But I, I'm not sure if things changed. I don't know. I haven't seen an interview with him. I haven't read anything about him. Does he still believe Sherry was abducted. I mean, how could he with all the evidence out there? I don't know. How, yeah. So, police, they verified all the facts that the ex boyfriend gave. And why would he lie? His DNA was on her clothes. He knew details that had never been released to the public. It was undeniable Sherry made it all up. She gone girled herself. Okay. I know like to gone girl would like be to gone girl yourself, but she did it. She did a gone girl. Um, it's, it's crazy. I'm actually surprised that she didn't try to blame her ex-boyfriend. Like I'm surprised she didn't show up on the side of the road and then was like, he had me held hostage. Maybe that was her plan, but she knew 
that his cousins and his mom knew that she was there and that they had seen her and she was fine. Or maybe there was a housemate there because there was that second bedroom. Maybe somebody was living there. And she was like, oh, I can't really say that because they'll be like, no, you weren't. We saw you totally free walking around the house. Anyways, that concludes this week's extra long case. I was going to make it a two-parter, but I thought, what the heck? Let's just make it really long. (laughs) You can see why I wanted a co-host. Talk theories and someone who didn't know the case. Like, I wish I had a co-host. I had never heard this case before because to get their reaction when I'm telling this would have been been good. Uh, I'm going to bring it back, though. This is an easy one. This is an easy one to bring this back to. To Sherry Papini, I say, hell no. Please remember to rate the podcast five stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Leave a comment, leave a review, and share with your friends. Don't forget to check out Hell No, a true crime podcast on TikTok and Instagram. Thanks for listening and see you next week.